I was allowing the psalm to paint a picture of what processing to Jerusalem might be like when I noticed it. And I think I noticed it because it seemed like the wrong word in a familiar sentence. I'd grown up singing, this is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. But in this instance, I couldn't help thinking this wasn't the day to rejoice and be glad in it. Tomorrow, perhaps, next month, maybe, the summer, almost certainly. Then I remembered when I processed from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem one Palm Sunday, in a long crowd you could see on the winding roads in front and behind. Plenty of people from around the world, monks, nuns, clergy. I was behind a group of local Christians and this was a day to rejoice. Slotted in the middle of reverend groups in habits and gowns, they were in jeans waving their national flag alongside their palms and the sound system blasted out worship songs in Arabic. This was less procession and more party in the middle of oppression. A day when they could forget movement restrictions and keeping their head down, they could express who they were. If, this, if they could make this a day to rejoice and be glad, why couldn't I make this day, 28th of March, a day to rejoice? Reading back over the Psalm, I noticed that not only is this the day, but also this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. It's a mistake to think that Mark's gospel, or Matthew or Luke for that matter, are just accounts of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. Everything is told for a specific reason. The gospels have been building up to Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the events of Holy Week, ever since Peter declared Jesus was the Messiah back in chapter eight of Mark's gospel. And they draw on this imagery of a great procession in Psalm 118. Jesus arrives on a donkey rather than a horse to show he is a messenger of peace, not war. The crowds wave palms, a homage to the victor. Jesus enters this walled city, a righteous person entering through the gate a righteous, victorious messenger of peace. On the procession I joined, the processing crowds pinched together through the lion's gate and into the narrow streets of Jerusalem's old city. We all passed through that gate, nuns, priests, partying locals, tourists like me, armed soldiers. Hang on, we all passed through this gate. There wasn't a checkpoint for righteousness. Surely this couldn't be the gate that the righteous entered through. I wonder if this is a trailer for what's about to play out, a theological point. That through Jesus's death and resurrection, all are forgiven and therefore all can be considered righteous. All can therefore enter through the gate. Indeed, in John's gospel, Jesus describes himself as the gate. Whoever enters through that gate will be saved. That's in keeping with what we teach as Methodists. All need to be saved, all can be saved, all can know they are saved, all can be saved completely. 
The account of Holy Week shows us just what a difficult concept that is. The crowd passes through the gate to go on to shout crucify. Are they therefore righteous? The soldiers pass through the gate to arrest Jesus, throw dice for his clothes and pierce his side with a spear. Are they therefore righteous? The religious leaders pass through the gate on their way to and from late night kangaroo courts. Are they therefore righteous? Judas passes through the gate to betray. Is he therefore righteous? Peter passes through the gate to deny and abandon. Is he therefore righteous? I struggle with the word righteous. The only time I really use it in everyday speech are to accuse someone of being self-righteous or to accuse them of showing righteous indignation. The next phrase of the psalm can help us understand that word. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. The phrase, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, crops up in seven other places in the Bible. In Isaiah, it relates to a new Jerusalem ruled by a cornerstone of justice. In Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospels, it comes as the conclusion to the parable of the wicked tenants about workers who refuse to give the fruits of their harvest to the messengers of the landowner, finally killing the landowner's son. Jesus tells this parable to the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, and we're told they realize that Jesus is telling it against them. The incident is recorded as happening shortly after Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the implication is that their fury at this and his other teachings is what leads to Jesus's arrest on Maundy Thursday. In Acts, Peter quotes it while he is on trial before the chief priests. In Romans, it is used to highlight that this stone will make people who focus on works, not faith, stumble. And in 1 Peter, it occurs in a passage about Jesus being the living stone. For those who do not believe, the rejected stone is the cornerstone. I'd always assumed that in all these different occurrences, the stone referred to, the cornerstone, was Jesus. But now reading this cornerstone alongside this gate, I began to wonder if it was the only interpretation. Could it refer to all those who are deemed to be unsuitable by the religious leaders, who are thrown aside as unrighteous, even though all can be saved? Those whose shouts go from Hosanna to crucify can be the cornerstone. Soldiers can be the cornerstone. Judas, as well as Peter, can be the cornerstone. And who in these readings is doing the rejecting of these potential cornerstones? In all instances, when this phrase is used, it is aimed at religious leaders. Yes, there was abuse of power and attempts to maintain the status quo where it benefited them. But they were devout people who were trying to discern God's will, even if they weren't doing it very well. Who are the equivalents today of those who do the rejecting? They're those people who are deciding which stones to use to build God's kingdom. That's us. 
With none of the bricks rejected and all of them potential cornerstones that could hold everything else up, I've got metaphorical bricks everywhere now and it's all a bit of a mess. And when we remember our metaphorical bricks are people and some have been hurt by others, we need to pretty quickly sort things out because of the real harm that some of these people can do to others. How can we do that without rejecting some of them? It's easy to see why those who are the most committed to try to bring God's kingdom end up throwing some of them away. No wonder we focus on the rejected who are vulnerable and abused, not those who make them vulnerable and have abused them. However, wishing the difficult people away isn't going to change the fact that all can be saved or can enter through the gate as righteous, the ones we reject can be the cornerstone. It was by listening to people who are normally ignored and rejected that I've had a glimpse of how we might go about making the contemporary equivalents of soldiers, the pilots and the Judases cornerstones. As a woman living in southeast London who walks or, home, or cycles home on my own late at night because I'm determined not to be made to feel afraid, I've been angry and uncertain over the last few weeks. I don't know whether I'm part of the solution or part of the problem. I've therefore been reading the perspective of long-standing campaigners against violence against women, in particular those instances I didn't notice because the violence wasn't against a professional white woman walking home in Southeast London. Those campaigners point out how we focus on what happened to the victim and ignore those who committed the violence. We're becoming more aware of some aspects of that and trying to stop ourselves focusing on what she was wearing, what she had to drink, her sexual history. But campaigners point out how much further it goes. We still ask ourselves why she was out that late on her own. Not why do some men think a woman is fair game if she's out in the evening on her own. We ask why didn't she leave him? Not why wasn't she safe in her own home? Or there is an absence of any account at all. Data is not collected. We're not listening. In Holy Week, we have an account of a victim and his sacred head sore wounded. But we also hear clearly the part everyone plays in causing the violence. It isn't an account of how Jesus went out and got himself killed. It might sound strange to use the phrase got himself killed, but I've lost count of the number of drivers who have shouted at me when cycling that I'll get myself killed, oblivious of who is generally responsible for fatalities among cyclists. This account doesn't run straight from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, missing out the data points in the middle. It is an account of how many different people, from Peter to Judas to religious leaders to soldiers, contribute to killing Jesus. I've also been reading accounts describing how justice failed because of misplaced empathy. He was having a hard time during lockdown as a defense for a husband murdering his wife. He had a good career ahead of him and it was youthful hijinks 
as a reason for a non-custodial sentence for rape. As a police officer, he would find community service for assaulting a woman difficult. So as I read about the people who contributed to Jesus's violent death, I'm more alert to my misplaced empathy. For me, that's particularly with Pontius Pilate, the hard-pressed bureaucrat whose instincts are in the right place, but acts for what he thinks is the greater good by seeking to avoid a riot in a packed city on the edge. I'm very tempted to explain away his role. That highlights where I most need to be alert for my potential to contribute to violence against others by thinking I'm acting for the greater good and my decisions are finally balanced. I'm still left with my metaphorical pile of bricks representing those I want to reject, but shouldn't. I still worry about how we can build God's kingdom involving both the oppressed and the oppressor. But it has helped me understand a little more where to start in prayer. When I'm praying for other people, I need to ensure that I'm giving an account of all involved. Not just that God will be with those who got themselves killed, got, who got themselves injured, who got themselves unjustly detained, or got themselves abused. I will pray too for those whose actions were violent, unjust, abusive. Like the grammar checker when I'm typing a document, I'm going to underline with a wavy green line where my prayers use the passive tense and I'll definitely consider revising it. I'm going to start naming who is doing what to whom. I'm not necessarily sure what I'll pray next, but God, help me to see how to make it stop. Seems a good place to start. Amen.